0: And welcome to the Upper Left Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Anderson. Make sure you subscribe to the show on your podcast app of choice. We are on pretty much all of them at this point now, uh, specifically on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Uh, We are on all those mediums. Make sure you subscribe to us and give us the five-star reviews that we so desperately crave here at the Upper Left Performance um, today on the show, we are joined by Eric Huddleston. Eric has been the director at IFAST, Indianapolis Sports and Fitness Training, and I've really enjoyed following him on social media, watching uh, the inner workings of his brain, and figured, you know what, I need to get him on the show. We had a great conversation a couple weeks ago uh, in regard to oscillatory isometrics and uh, breaking down Bill Hartman's intensive model. Um, and I figured, you know what, this should probably be in podcast form. So we brought Eric on to the show this week to discuss those topics, and then also the consolidation of stressors between sport and training load, which, if any of you know me, is a subject near and dear to my heart. I wrote an entire e-book on it, which is out now. Uh, quadrant training. Oh, you can download the book uh, by going to my Instagram, Jack underscore Anderson III. The link is in the bio, and you can sign up for Upper Left Performance and download that book for free uh, if you're interested in that consolidation of stress topic. Uh, That and many other things we dive into here with Eric. Eric um, really opened my eyes to uh, the importance of the guts and fluid and pressure in the trunk and how that can influence. Uh, our ability to absorb and produce force. Um, He talks about some practical strategies to um, assess and then take action in the weight room to help someone's ability to produce and absorb force. We also discuss oscillatory isometrics um, in relation to that topic and do a nice little dive, as I said, into the consolidation of stressors between sport and training load, particularly for professional sport athletes um this was probably one of the best shows that i've done so far Uh, it feels like honestly every week they keep getting better eric absolutely crushed it and hopefully you enjoy our hour-long conversation here on the upper left performance podcast let's get right to it eric thanks so much man for joining the show really appreciate it um i thought you'd be at work this week so i thought maybe you'd be a little busy so i was like man i really appreciate the time and then you just told me that uh you're still not at work, so. <laughs>
1: right? Right. Yeah, you know we're all we're all going through this process, I guess. But uh, no, I really appreciate you having me on. Um, looking forward to it. So,
0: yeah, man. No, to
1: uh, help some people.
0: Uh, I think it definitely will. I really appreciate our conversation last week, and we'll dive in in a second. But first, to be honest with you, in our conversation last week, I didn't even really kind of ask you your background or anything like that. And so, just kind of fill me and, and the listeners in, kind of on on where you came from and and how you got to IFast.
1: Right. Um, So, I'm the director of performance at IFAS. I've been here for two years now. I've been the director for a year. Um, I took over after uh, one of the performance coaches that was here, Ty Terrell, left for the Atlanta Hawks, and so left a spot open for me. But I had interned at IFAS in, I think, 2015 or 2016. Um, After I graduated from Ball State, um, I I first went out to San Diego to Fitness Quest 10 and interned out there um, and had a great time. Um, and then I, I came back to IFAST. I went to uh, Texas Tech University, and I was with the men's basketball team for a summer there uh, under John Riley. And then I spent an entire year from 17 to 18 with Indiana University of men's basketball with Cliff Marshall. So that was uh, that was that staff's first year at Indiana University. So um, did you know started out and kind of like cut my teeth with the with the private setting. Um, which was great because obviously like, I mean, you and I are both young strength coaches and you don't get that kind of practical experience in your, in your undergrad for sure. Um, and so that was good at just like learning how to talk to people. And then I got like more experience with the, with the team setting and, uh, and finally came back kind of to, to my dream job in the private setting, which was iFast and was able to kind of move up there. So,
0: yeah. That's awesome, man. Um, and, and, you know, Luckily for you and, and for me, you got to you get to rub elbows with Bill and Mike every day and I'm sure you, you, you get to just learn a crazy amount of things from them. So
1: Absolutely. Yeah. That's uh that is probably the, the biggest value for working at a place like iFast um, is just the the type of people that you get to be around and the type of conversations that you get to have just because Mike and Bill are in the room and uh you know, I've known those guys and, and known the people who were at iFast when I started there for seven years now since i was like a sophomore in college and so uh just learning and kind of expanding and frankly copying everything that they did for a long time until i was at least like smart enough to come up with something on my own was huge um because you need those people and like to, to have good people in your wheelhouse and that's what's so great about like getting to know you and getting to know all these other guys during this time uh is just that that you know we all Kind of have to as a young strength coach have to emulate the people that you want to be like and so that's those were the perfect people i think for me at that time
0: to be like well it's funny too you mentioned that because i think going into this pandemic lockdown situation i felt like i had a pretty good handle on like a lot of things and now that people are like bored and want to talk right. i'm like holy shit, like, I don't know anything. I was like, oh, man. Dude, it is a, it is a, it is a lot. So what's funny is, like, it's there's
1: so much, it, it's so flipped from what it normally is for me because a lot of the time, it's like, I just, I'm a, constantly applying stuff, right? So, like, I, I have athletes in the weight room. I have all these people that I'm working with. And like, now it's the flip side where I have so much time to think about stuff, but like really, I'm the only person that I'm applying this to at this point. <laughs> Cause like, I can't be with people in person. So I can, I can, you know, talk or coach online and do that stuff. And that's great. But like to see its effect, like you really have to be there and to be working with people like in the trenches the entire time. So it's funny, but it has been like refreshing. It's been, it's been nice to have conversation with people and to kind of have things flow down and to be like this. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's good.
0: For sure, yeah. Pros and cons to both. I I really feel like a lot of, of the stuff I've been working. on, I'm like, yeah, very n equals one, and then I have like one dude that will come over from Huntington Beach and like work out with me that I've known for a while. I'm like, okay, well, we got two of us now. Like, all right, like you know, right, <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. So um, so the the topics I wanted to talk about, I think, kind of all come under the umbrella of Bill's model, I think, and, and obviously. Right you know as we talked the other day you're not going to know all the ins and outs of it but i was wondering if you could give me a basic overview of some of the things that he's talking about in regards to uh the guts pressure and then like maybe how it all relates to gait uh, you know again that's a massive topic but just kind of to set the stage right. for what we're going to talk about today
1: right Um, so again, this is just going to, I'm going to try to make this as digestible in this amount of time as possible, because typically if if somebody goes to Bill's intensive, they're locked in a room for three days for like 10 hours a day. Right. So I'm going to try to disseminate this as much as possible. And like, I think the thing that's been interesting about this before we get into it is just that I, Bill is a physical therapist and he does do some strength training and, and some of that competition type stuff. But but really what he's allowed me to do is he's, he's given me the type of stuff that I'm going to talk about in a second, like just the physics and everything that goes on with this. And he's kind of let me run with it as far as like how this is applied in a weight room, how this is apl- applied in like performance settings. So for people who aren't injured basically, because um, that's the population that I work with primarily. So um, to start off, I think the, the underlying principle that that's kind of surrounded in all of this is something called procession. So um, there's an internal force that goes inside your body that that is related to gravity that causes this kind of forward spin and pressure. So, so everything's moving forward. So the guts are moving forward. Um, When your heart beats, it, it actually contracts from the back forward and kind of like throws itself forward and then loops around again. So there's this, there's this, Uh, kind of unseen but seen because you can you can see that kind of stuff when when you know organs contract or whatever it is so there's this force that goes on inside your body that spins forward into the left and it causes kind of uh, an internal force shift from from an external standpoint also so if, if i'm being shifted over the left all the time to walk in a straight line, I'm gonna to have to push back out of the left towards the right. So that's where I get this kind of like right stance that you hear about in a, in a model like PRI. Um, so if I've got, you know, PRI will, will, will attribute all of this to, uh, to like asymmetries inside the body, which is true, but, but there's this underlying force that, that shifts everything over the left. And then for you to push out of it, you have to push out of the left into the right. Um, and so, what this does when you have when you look at different shapes of people, so we'll talk about shapes, I think here in a little bit also, but um, there are there are kind of just uh genetically predisposed thorax shapes that that people are going to be better at certain things than they are at other things um and so when you look at pressure and volume and how they relate with internal physics and then how it how it looks from an external standpoint, there's there's a couple of layers of compensation that go on. So um, pressure works in gradients, right? And it's the same thing inside our body. So we have an upper diaphragm and a lower diaphragm, and the upper diaphragm is kind of supported right under our lungs, and the lower diaphragm uh is, is at the base of your pelvis, kind of in your pelvic outlet. And uh so when you have an area so so we talked about this before in like the shape of a triangle or an inverted triangle right And so i want to get away from that because i want to talk in like 3d shape i i think that makes a lot more sense so like if we look at an ice cream cone you've got this area of at the top that is that is uh high volume and low pressure and then the area at the bottom at the tip of the cone that is that is low volume and high pressure so obviously, when you have something like that, you have a gradient system that says, "Look, that pressure at the bottom it builds up to a certain point, and then it has to go up. It has to move through this gradient upward." So, um, those are the type of the type of people that you see in short duration. Uh, they're they're going to call it like aerobic sports, but uh, or sorry, anaerobic sports, but. They're, they're power sports they're your jumping athletes they're your sprinters those are the people that live at that end where like they've got a wide shoulder and a narrow pelvis um and then you can kind of there are four classifications of that so there's the inverse of that which is just like you're kind of floppy gravity you know gravity sinks them into the ground all the time they don't they're not good at jumping uh I wouldn't call them good force producers, anything like that. And then you have like these kind of hybrid models. So you look at a power lifter, power lifters are very compact, but they're also very wide. And so they look kind of like, I don't know, like a can of sardines maybe. So they're a little wider. Um, And then you have people that are great across country. So they're kind of like that string bean. And so they've got a different kind of like helical angle that they live with also. So all of those kind of shapes in accordance with this, this, internal pressure that we talked about kind of predisposed people to to what they're going to be good at. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's probably without getting too deep into like what all is happening with some of this stuff, like that's probably the best explanation that you can get in five minutes.
0: No, that's, and that's beautiful. I think that for like our, our intents and purposes, it's perfectly reasonable explanation. So delve into kind of, for example, what we're seeing um, especially with the the first one you mentioned, which I think is probably like or the first two probably, which is probably the two that you're working with predominantly at IFAST and I think what most of us working with with basketball players in particular are probably going to see. uh, what are what are some strengths and weaknesses and and things you're seeing um, that you need to kind of work on in training with them.
1: Right. So so if we talk about that first shape again, we're talking about the ice cream cone shape, the, the people that you would see in a in a more uh more like power-based sport um because of that shape and we talked about like the the high pressure and the low pressure at at the base because pressure is so so easily reversed out of the bottom they're going to be good at your jumping sports they're going to be good at your at your high speed sprinting um their shape is going to bias them and and i know that couples talked a little bit about this too Um, when you had him on is is he talked about like vertical displacement of the pelvis as it comes down well that that doesn't coincide very well with the shape that we're talking about right now that ice cream cone shape so what's going to what's going to be their drive is going to be forward sports so sprinting a lot of the times you'll see the pelvis behind the individual obviously um PRIL called that an anterior pelvic tilt um and they're going to be your very explosive athletes so Um, when you look at that they're going to be really explosive but do they have the other end of that from a training standpoint so are they good at loading or accepting force and what we find a lot of the times is that that is not their strong suit Um, you see a lot of athletes nowadays and they've got these non-contact soft tissue injuries and it's because it's probably in most cases not because they are two great force producers it's because they're just not good at accepting that on the other end and so when you have somebody who is able to reverse reverse that internal force and and that internal pressure and have it explode up all the time but they're not good at at having it settle at the bottom you don't have someone who who is able they're able to jump really high but they're not able to absorb that on the other end
0: what Um, let me cut in here i'm curious what is what is preventing them from accepting the force? Is it the shape of the pelvic outlet or is it a combination of factors?
1: That's great. Uh, yeah, it, 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 that is one of the main drives, I think. And so you do have a lot of factors, but, but one of the main drives here is um, you look at someone and I don't, there was a picture that went around online a long time ago uh, during Robert Griffin III's like pre-draft workout of his knees just buckling together when he did his vertical jump but the dude is explosive, right? Like there's no denying that that dude can cut and run and do all the stuff, but he's been injury prone. And so a lot of people will say, look, like that knee valgus is what's causing a lot of stuff. It's like the the pelvis is what's orienting him towards that knee valgus. So what happens when you have this, this ice cream cone shape is that the pelvis is going to be behind the individual, like Zach mentioned, but then you also when you have this state of what what bill calls exhalation so they're constant force producers they're always driving forward in a state of exhalation that is also kind of um meshes really well together with internal rotation and so what you're seeing there at the bottom of that jump if you look at that picture of RG3 is just the culmination of the fact that he is unable to like flex his hip appropriately and and have like vertical displacement of his pelvis and so what happens is his butt goes back behind him and his knees clap together and that creates an even higher kind of concentration of of internal pressure at his at his pelvic diaphragm so that he can reverse that and jump up so during like the eccentric phase of his counter movement jump there is no loading going on he just has to use this external like extremity driven strategy in order to get off the ground but he's really forceful in getting off the ground the pressure is just not going anywhere at the bottom of the pelvis because it's already so densely packed
0: and it's and it's it's just at this point where the guts are just waiting to fly up essentially right exactly
1: exactly and so so when you have someone who their their primary position and we haven't gotten into a lot of the guts yet and so i'll do that right now um The pelvic diaphragm essentially is like the base of the port for all of the organs right so everything kind of sits on top of that in between that and the thoracic diaphragm and so when you have a jump uh basically what's happening is right like when i go into my counter movement the organs are slamming down on the pelvic diaphragm so that's that's kind of my counter movement at the bottom and then i have to be able to reverse that and so when we look at that ice cream cone shape like they're almost always ascended anyways because they're, they're very good at being pushy and they don't load well. And if they don't load well, that's where we're going to see those soft tissue injuries on the, on the opposite end. And so when they're not able to, to descend that pelvic diaphragm on their, on their downward descent and, and to be able to, like, you have to use compensatory movement in order to overcome that and to, to just like get the task done, right? Like athletes are really good and our bodies in general are really great at just being able to go through the path of least resistance. And if my pelvic diaphragm is not reorienting and those guts aren't slamming in the bottom and I can't get that, like I'm going to knee valgus and I'm going to hip shift back and I'm going to, you know, be what Ty Terrell would call like a back jumper. So like my torso collapsed forward and before I can go up. So um, that's just like that end of the example. And so those are a lot of people that, that we would work with on the higher end of the spectrum, but like, most of the people that that come to me as like a high school or young athlete like they're not on that end of the spectrum at all like normally when you come for performance training it's like you're probably not good at something or like you recognize that at least right and so the people that i'm working with a lot are like the the inverse of that they're they've got this area that's narrow at the top uh that is very high pressure and low volume and they've got this base at their pelvis so you look at a female athlete we we would describe them as having like wide hips um, and probably a narrower shoulder. And so when you look at what their thorax shape makes them good at, and I hate even saying good at because it's not really a great, it's not great for sports. and It's not great for life is like succumbing to gravity. You have this area of high pressure at the top and, and of low pressure and high volume at the bottom. And when they go down in the bottom of their counter movement, they're just sunk. And so when you look at their jump also, you're saying, look, like their knees are collapsing together just like RG3. So what what like what makes them different from how they're responding to that? And it's like their only strategy to get out of the bottom, because they don't they don't they're not collapsing into Valgus when they're when they're on the descent of the counter movement, they're collapsing into Valgus once they've hit their bottom range and they're trying to drive back up because they have no other way to to compress. And, and kind of close off that pelvic outlet and shoot pressure back upwards then, then knee valgus. Like, that is is they're going to be their main strategy.
0: So what they're trying to do there then is, by the internal rotation mechanism, is close the outlet to create pressure to get the guts to come up?
1: Absolutely. Okay. So that is, that is the most, like, concise and, like, extremity-driven strategy that someone can have to, to like, achieve a task, right? Like, these girls know – They are not good force producers. They feel it every time they leave the floor. You know, we're talking about a volleyball player. Every time they leave the floor, they're feeling like this overcoming sensation of not being able to get up enough, right? So yeah, their strategy, like their body understands that and their body says, okay, we'll clap your knees together. We can get that pressure to shift back up. Um, It's just not going to be optimal, right? Because we have to realize that at the same time, they're using this extremity driven strategy and they're, they're not great at limiting the depth of the counter movement anyway. So like we're probably not getting the most out of that because they're already succumbing to gravity all the time. So for getting them to reverse that with any, with any like fluidness is probably not going to happen very well. So So that's a lot of what what I work with.
0: Essentially then their amortization phase is just extremely long.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It is they've got this runway that they're trying to build up on that just like never ends, right? So they just can't press on the gas, nothing's going anywhere. And so to turn that around, like they've got to clap their knees together and they've got to really use their arms and their back to jump. And so like both ends of this look very similar. And so we can, we, I, I see a lot of people try to categorize these people in the same boat and it's like they're, they're doing the same thing, but it's for very, very different reasons all the time.
0: Yeah, that's that's beautifully stated. Now, since they're doing the same thing, I see you, you know, and this is a little bit older on your Instagram, but you're using a lot of band-assisted jumps for that. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've moved away from that or not, but now it's making sense why you would use the same strategy for both pe- both people.
1: Right, no, and I, I'm still very much doing that. I uh, I, I think that, that maybe I've opened up my mindset to that a little bit after having a couple conversations with Ty, where, like, there are some guys on the top end of this who, like, if I'm looking at a professional basketball player in like a micro dosing session, like maybe they're about to go out on the court. And so we have like a trap bar with a band resisted jump combination. in that sense, like I can see using it. That's not the population that I'm working with for the most part, cause I almost never have a professional basketball player in season. Um, and, and so what that video was basically saying was that like, for most of my population, they are not going to be good at limiting the depth of their counter movement so like the band assist helps with that for that for that person who's the ice cream cone shape uh they are going to be able to to just simply accept as much force as they can because it slows down that portion of the jump where they like land so i do a lot of repeat jumps with band assist so what it does is it kind of slows that process down because they're pulling the band down and so they're able to get like this full range of contact on their foot where they're in this like toe kind of back to midfoot to heel and then they they're able to repeat off of that so so they, they do really well with the with the pushing part but they don't do well with the landing part and then when you have the inverse of that and you've got that kind of loose sally who who is sinking on the ground all the time that band is going to keep her from getting so low and to to just like giving in to gravity so much that she's able to actually push out of the bottom so um it's really really an effective exercise i think for, for both ends of the spectrum, because it gives them what they don't have already.
0: And for your inverse, uh, like ice cream cone person, I could also yeah. see that reaccelerating the guts a little more quickly on the way up too, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And so the reason that I don't do band resistant a lot is because, uh, and this was explained to me a long time ago by Bill, was that over like slowing down, something that's supposed to be dynamic and so if you look at like band resisted sprint starts or band resisted like shuffling or anything like that or in this case when we're talking about band assisted jump you are stopping that that uh release of the the organs from the pelvic diaphragm on the way up by by strapping a band over their shoulder and slowing them down so it doesn't have the same carryover that it would if you were to just let them jump right like by band assisting it, you're allowing that, that same pattern to happen. The organs still slam down on the pelvic diaphragm during that, like, amortization phase. But they're slamming down less violently, right? So it's giving both ends what they need. But when you come up out of that, if you're looking at a band resisted jump, it's just like it's stopping everything that's supposed to happen naturally from, like, an internal physics standpoint, stopping all that from happening. Um, and, and so when, then when you take the bands off and you do another jump, like, yeah, their force output probably goes up if you're testing it immediately, right? But from my understanding, that's going to be based on like a, a muscular extremity-driven effort to overcome that force rather than like an internally driven method of, of overcoming that.
0: And do you think – so you, you're saying we could almost train – The acceleration of the guts and use the guts to our advantage.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I think so. That's why if you look at my Instagram stuff too, like I use water bags with a lot of people who are ready for something with a water bag because the water bag does the exact like. If I'm using it for a clean, right? Like, and I'm not even looking for like triple extension and a clean because I I don't think that probably happens a lot even like in an operational jump on the court. When I'm using something like that. Like I have to bring that water bag up, and so the the fluid splashes from the bottom of the water bag to the top of the water bag, and that's momentum that I'm that I'm like gathering right there. And then when I'm doing my catch, after I've already my my heels have already hit the ground, then the water comes down and it it's slamming into the bottom of the water bag, and then I've got my catch, and that's my that's that's literally the response that my organs are having. Like it's not instantaneous; everything is delayed a little bit, and so to be able to catch that or to be able to use that momentum to explode up like that's that's the most the most simple training effect that i can have in like one session is getting someone to to utilize that quicker because like the strength and the power stuff will come that's not that's not like that but like if you get someone to understand like if i'm going down if i if i'm a loose sally and i don't i don't cooperate with gravity well and i get this huge exhale and it causes my my thoracic diaphragm to um you know to to elevate and and i get this high pressure situation going up throughout the motion Then i'm already priming myself to get off the ground quicker and so if you can just instill some of that very early on it like it makes a lot of sense
0: yeah and this is a great lens to look through because i, I force is obviously happening like we're creating force with all these things we're doing but i think a lot right. of times we only look at that we're not looking at the other things and this is like a just a great lens to look at so
1: yeah, I, that's that's been something that's been confusing for me as I've talked to a lot of people recently is that like sports performance is always looked at as like increasing like the concentric drive that somebody has. So increasing that ability to like produce force and like really nobody's looking at the other end of that. It's like, we can create all this force, but then you have guys complaining about like, patella all the time it's because they're they're great force generators you're, you're creating the situation where everything is like moving up or moving forward but you don't teach anybody how to how to move back or to move down well and so that's when you get all these thoughts like you see a guy in the nfl like put a foot in the ground and push and and, and cut away from the sidelines and like they can't control that force into the cut and so they're just not pushing well out of it. So when you look at repeat stuff like that, it's like, okay, when we talk about gait or we talk about like repeat jumps, like this stuff is repetitive. And of course they have to be able to get off the ground or to be able to push out of, a, out of the hip. But like, you also have to be able to get into that position well to utilize and get out of it well.
0: Yeah, no, 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 I, I completely agree. And I want to, I actually, this is the next thing I want to go to, but right before it, I actually, have you messed around at all with like curvilinear runs or running like a circle or a curve at higher speeds? So I
1: I just looked at some of this stuff the other day. And so I, I do want to try some of this stuff. The thing that uh, that you have to look at, and maybe this is a discussion that we should have like another time too, but um, because I, I don't know really, I don't, really don't know where this lands because when you look at internal procession and you look at like how people turn in general, Turning to the left is what we do. So if you look at, like, professional car racing, they're always going left. If you look at the way that a gymnast flips in the air, they're always turning left. If you look at the way that a figure skater leaves the ground, they always spin to the left. And because of that procession, like, spinning to the left is easy for us.
0: That's where we want to go anyway, right?
1: That's where we want to go. There's, There's – I don't know how much of, like – training to the left. that's what's confusing about it. it's like i can see a justification for like curvilinear running to the right right um to the left i don't know that it buys many people much of anything you know what i'm saying I, I realize that one has to go to the other and i haven't played around with it at all but like i think that's an interesting thing to go into because it's going to be super comfortable going one way and it's going to be really uncomfortable going the other because like I remember being in college and we had this running track above the gym and it would change directions on different days. And like, I could watch people looking back now and like whenever the track was making you run to the left, people were pretty comfortable and there were a lot of people out there. And that was like Monday, Wednesday and Friday. And then on Tuesdays and Thursdays, when the track ran to the right, but not that many people out there doing that kind of stuff.
0: The bodies just so know, man, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You and just don't want to do it. If you're, not, if
1: you're it. not used to it, if you're not used to it and you're not good at like, continuously kind of pushing yourself to the left and then pushing yourself back out of the left. It just, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't do you much good and you're going to kind of feel like crap and your body notices that after a while.
0: Yeah. I've been messing with it a little bit once a week for myself. Like I'll kind of get like a, I don't, I'm not bad at measurements, but a fairly large circle um, and just try to bend it all the way around. And I've noticed, Mm -hmm. you know, just relating back to the guts side of things, Um, I've noticed you really have to manage, like trying to keep the guts in one spot. If you get up too high, they start to slosh back up and you have to work hard to manage the pressure and get it back down. I I could be off, but I was thinking about it the other day in our conversation and, and then running and I was like, man, this is like making a lot of sense to me here. So,
1: right. Right.
0: Um, but yeah, so I wanted to, this is the biggest uh, topic, I think for me, the one that I was most interested in talking about, so you were talking about getting in and out of cuts, loading and propulsion. Um, I guess first just to kind of, again, let's set the stage so that everybody's kind of clear on the terms we're throwing out there. What are, what are kind of your phases of gate? And then once you get to it, what are you looking to train and whatnot out of it?
1: Right. Um, and so if we're looking at like single foot contact in, in gate, what I would say is that we start at like the lateral, calcaneus so the outside heel of the foot. Um and we we kind of flow through this cycle until we hit like big toe off on the ground. And so um what what Bill and what IFAST I guess in general would call that that lateral calcaneous strike is like early propulsion. So that's if you are standing, and this is what people I think get confused with a lot of time when we talk about like loading versus propulsion. Uh, if you are standing you are in an in a Overcoming propulsive state, no matter what, because you're overcoming gravity and you're standing on your feet. Um, So, there's not an athletic environment that propulsion is not happening in unless you are completely off the ground. Um, And so, that's the first thing that people have to look at is like this is uh, you are constantly in a state of propulsion. It just depends on what state you're at. So, uh, deceleration, heel contact, inhalation, those are all kind of like a, a group of terms that mean like early propulsion. And so that is, I have just made contact, I'm assuming on the front leg, and then you, you look at the back leg, and the back leg is in its late propulsive stage or it's off the ground at that point. Um, and so as you kind of roll towards your midfoot, you hit kind of like around where your arch is at, you start moving kind of more medially um, with where your ground contact is at. And so you're, that's what I would call a mid propulsive state. And so I don't think you're fully inhaled. I don't think you're fully exhaled. You're still biased towards exhalation at that point because we have to remember that it is still propulsion. It's still an exhalation position. It is still something where you are fighting gravity. And so when you get to end range or toe off, you're at your late propulsive stage. And so that's where we think about, um, you know, the greatest amount of hip flexion, the greatest amount of, uh, uh, or sorry, uh, hip extension um, the greatest amount of, of, of knee extension. Um, and then we're at our end range of motion. We're pushing forward. And we've probably already started to, to think about at least or, or anticipate heel strike and early propulsion on the other foot at that point.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, so now taking all that into, into account, um, what, I'm trying to think of like the best way to phrase this. What so so there's to me this is the most interesting part is that you're not really using the term loading at all, um, right? You know, and, and and yet we still know we're loading, but kind of in an early propulsive propulsive state, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead.
1: Um. So, loading. I think when when you use that term, you have to consider like there are going to be some muscles that are. Doing a majority of the work, and there's going to be some muscles that are just kind of structurally being there, right? So we look at like hip extension, and obviously, like the glute is doing a huge amount of like concentric contraction, which is pushing fluid forward in the body. And it's kind of like eccentrically orienting, but like it's like if you just keep getting, if you're standing in line somewhere and you get like pushed from behind, like everything on the backside is that rigid push and you're falling forward into it. And so the falling forward part is what I would consider like a loading phase, right? Like you're not actively pushing. It's not, the muscles not contracted or compressed, but it's like, it's accepting the force that's going, that, that's coming from behind it, I guess.
0: Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Now, when you're looking to train this, let's say in the weight room, let's not, let's not even talk about like sprinting or anything, anything else. Okay. Cause I think, I think, this is probably probably one of the biggest disconnects I've seen in talking to other coaches. We can, we can prescribe someone, for example, and we'll just use some of the examples I see you using. We can prescribe someone like an RFE, right, or a split squat of mm-hmm. some kind. And for most people, that's all it is. But for you, you're looking at it more in stages of propulsion, right? And you can position the limbs in different areas to get the stages of propulsion that you're looking for. So kind of just explain that a little bit.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Um, and so it, it all kind of ties back to, to somebody's initial shape when they come in and what I've, what I've determined that they need to get out of, uh, you know, the weightlifting session. But, um, what you have to look at is still going to be like, where is this pressure and, and, and the internal physics taking this person? So, so you're um, still
0: looking at the shapes then kind of
1: absolutely yeah okay. i have to and, and then there, there's some various in the shapes too that we can get into probably another time but like it's just a left versus right bias also too so if i am always being pushed over the left i'm going to be a better pusher out of the left and a better accepting of that push on the right side um and so like the example that i that i give and that i use as kind of like a generic blanket is this rfe or or, or ffe split squat so if I'm going to do an RFE split squat for myself and I know that I am good at pushing off my left and not as good at pushing off of my right, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to set myself up in a position that is going to try to push me towards late propulsion on my right side and and kind of more early propulsion on my left side, because that's not, that's what I'm not good at. I'm not good at pushing. I'm not good at, at, um, at being forceful off my right so I want to be better at that and then I'm not as good at accepting that force on my left side so I need to tone that back a little bit. So if I'm looking at like a rear foot elevated split squat, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put my left foot on the elevation and I'm going to have my right foot forward on the ground. Um, And what that does is, we talked about this in terms of like tibial angle, that's going to set my tibial angle kind of uh, at a less than 90 degree angle right so i'm going to be a little more acute um and it's going to you're going to see a shift in body weight forward which is what i want right like forward is like the direction of propulsion it's not downward it's not and it's not you know backwards it's forward so if i want to be good at that i've got to set up exercises that are going to get me to to look like i'm moving forward and so when it comes to the left side then for me what I'm going to do is I'm going to put my left foot on the elevation then. And so that's going to be the front foot elevated side. And that's going to set up that, that more vertical tibial angle. I'm going to be going straight up, straight down. Like what Zach talked about with, with uh, you know, how the pelvis descends Um, and, and when you're kind of looking at that track and that stuff makes a lot of sense to people is that like, if I want to go forward, if I want to be good at being pushy, I have to get that weight shift forward. And if I want to be really good at loading, and and be really good at, at putting on the brakes i have to be more vertical with that
0: that's that's perfect man that's exactly what i'm looking for and and i think that that just goes back to we're creating eccentric braking on the left which is typically more propulsive and then the vice versa on the other side and so you're you're training asym- asymmetrically then you're not you're not doing an rfe on both sides and, you know again depending on the person but with right. this mindset you're you're training yourself rear foot elevated on one side and front foot elevated on the other side
1: Right, and I think that's the way that it, like, it should be so, it's so easy, it, let's say you have all the resources in the world, and you're able to look at force plate data, like, you can interpret this force plate data and say, look, like, this person is not good at pushing off the right side, so we need to make them a better a more explosive athlete on the right, and, like, that's simple, um, and, you know, I don't have those resources that are as, as readily available for me, so I have to look at stuff like, uh like, Maybe the left side, I see a, a greater increase in uh, hip ER, which would tell me that, you know, I'm I'm biased towards IR on that side. So that's going to make me a good pusher. And those are the tests that I use. And those are the tests that I learned from Bill to be able to say, like, like this person is going to be asymmetrical in their force production. Um, and, and so that's that, I think that's the way it should be. I think it should be – this should be something that can be so easily – kind of uh like a trickle down into how we do everything because once you see it through that lens like it really does affect a lot of your decision making and saying like oh if i've got if i let's say i'm doing a team camp of volleyball girls like i can almost assume right off the bat if this is a if this is a group of girls that are all six one and up like i can assume how they're going to move when they come in the door for the most part right like then it just it trickles down into individual decision making so so, yeah, it's as it's, it's easy as that. And then, you know, when you look at some of the other stuff with RFE or FFE, you can look at where you place the load. So whether I do ipsilateral or contralateral loading is a huge thing too. So, like, let's take that, that front foot uh, or that rear foot elevated example again. So my right leg is forward, my left foot is back on the box. For me, I'm going to load that because I want to be really pushy. I'm going to load that ipsilaterally on that right side. Because then I'm going to feel the load on the outside of the hip more, and it's going to help me push forward and out of that. Where if I had the load contralaterally, it would be driving me back into that hip
0: more, because it would
1: it would make the exercise be more be
0: more vertical in how it moves. And so I almost so I, I like the way you're saying that because I was thinking about it in a different way because I knew you were going to say ipsilateral there, but I was almost thinking like it it's trying to pull you onto that outside loading. Uh, like early propulsive state and you have to resist that and push back the other exactly, way. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Same thing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It
1: is setting, it's setting a constraint to say like, wh- one of my biggest things for myself and my coaching is to like have as little like vocal input as possible. So I don't want to tell somebody like, Hey, push out of this hip or do, do this or that. Like I'll just set the load in their outside hand and say, look, you have to fight this load and to be able to push out of the hip." And so, what what a guy I used to work with, uh Jason Neal used to call this was like we used to for the athletes, we used to call this into a cut or out of a cut. So whenever the load was ipsilateral it was out of a cut because I felt like they had to load more more uh more laterally and push out of it. And then when you have, you know, into a cut or that contralateral load, you've got uh you've got someone who is literally trying to sink into that hip and then and then push out of it. So yeah no it was just it was just a simple way of looking at things but those easy constraints are a really really good way to to not have to say anything and to get the result that you want from somebody
0: so then on the the front foot side you're going to load contralaterally to get the opposite effect correct
1: exactly exactly so you so you look at that and and what that load does is that turns me into that hip so that so that front foot when it's elevated, it's already at this position where you have a more vertical tibia and then it's pulling me into the hip as I go down. So I'm turning into that side, whereas on the, on the ipsilateral side, I'm turning out of the hip. And if you just look at where their belly button is pointing, this is something I learned really early on is to like, look at where their belly, if they had a laser coming out of their belly button, what direction is that laser pointing throughout the exercise? And if you look at contralateral load, it's pointing over the front knee. And if you look at ipsilateral load, it's pointing out of the front knee, so that that's regardless of front foot or rear foot elevator or anything like that. It just, it just makes sense to stack those things on top of what we're already doing. And then you get into other levels of it and say, like, the most influential piece I think that I've implemented into every exercise that we do is breathing. Because if I'm trying to control what the pelvic diaphragm is doing and what the organs are doing, breath is the easiest way to influence that because it's move it's literally moving the diaphragm if i'm able to if i'm have somebody who's able to to appropriately like go through these ranges of like ascension and descension of the pelvic diaphragm
0: i guess so basically then like you're just hoping to get an exhale and get the diaphragm to ascend along with the concentric portion of the movement and right yeah right okay
1: and so when you when you program that for athletes what i like to start with is like giving them a little bit of what they're already good at and then a little bit of what i know that they can manage um and so if i have somebody who is who really succumbs to gravity really well and like they're not a good force producer i still might start them in front foot elevation on their split squat but i might give them like i might give them breathing that says okay we're going to exhale on the way down or or hold their breath on the way down so they're holding this like primed really uh compact uh uh position as far as like internal pressure goes because if you're holding your breath you're also that's like exhaling against an inhale basically like you are the balsalva maneuver basically you're exhaling but you're holding you're exhaling against a closed glottis um and so when you look at that like that is an exhale position and so i'm setting them up to exhale basically on the way down and then i want them to exhale on the way up so i get an exhale on both ends of that and i'm creating this very condensed, uh,
0: compressive, propulsive position throughout the entire movement. So you, you on that, will you begin with an exhalation and have them hold their breath or do they inhale, hold their breath? I think they inhale because they're already
1: inhaled. So they're already good at that anyways. If they're they're this loaded position person, they're already really good at being inhaled. So they're probably predisposed to that position all the time anyways. So I have them just inhale, they're gonna hold their breath and that's gonna create a more high pressure situation throughout the, the structure. And then they go down. And so that helps them resist that that pelvic diaphragm, that organ descent anyways, because it holds their pelvic diaphragm up a little bit in the state of exhalation. And then they're able to reverse that really, really easily then because they're already primed in this position. So
0: could you say you're almost like potentiating the ascent of the diaphragm with that? 100%. Okay. 100%. Dude, I like where this like, is going. Is, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah,
1: that that is that is you're just setting someone else up for success at that point, because then you have a little bit of these pieces that they're already good at. And you're saying like, look now, now you're going to be able to create force on your own and push out of this without all of these other factors like gravity and all this other stuff imposing too much force on you on the way down.
0: Beautiful. No, this is, this is awesome stuff, man. Um, So let's transition over same concepts. You're just changing up tempos essentially uh, your right. oscillatory isometric work that you just recently posted, which I'm really, really enjoyed, um, seeing, take me into just kind of the, what the thought process is there. And then to be honest, so I've used it a couple of times now. What are your, just kind of like, where are you looking to fit that in? What's kind of your sets and reps for that? Like, where do you envision that going? Right.
1: Yeah. right. Um, so, so to start off with on with like the, the oscillatory isometric stuff, um, my kind of hierarchy for someone when they walk in the door is being able to check off a couple boxes first. And so that's, they have to be able to accept force. So that's my, that's my first one. And most of the people that I work with, like we just talked about that are this inverted ice cream cone shape, uh, they're already good at accepting force. They're just not good at accepting it appropriately. So you have to teach them some of the landing stuff and how to put their brakes on appropriately. But then we have to look at, so we've got accepting force, we have to look at creating force and then creating force quickly and then creating force quickly, repeatedly. And so those are like the hierarchies that we go through with this. And so once they've checked off that box and they're able to accept force, then we have to be able to create force and create force quickly. And so that's where these kind of OI or oscillatory isometric drills kind of come into this is that I'm basically overloading a stop by, by adding weight to it. And then having them put on the brakes as quickly as possible. So, even if you look at the videos that I put up, like I'm not great at that, how quickly I'm able to stop on some of these things. So, I should be able to stop a little higher. Um, I should be able to stop with a little more, uh, a little more like directness about it rather than sinking into it. But that's where like your eye as a coach has to come in and say, like, look, maybe there's too much load or maybe this is too high of a depth to go into. But basically, what we're looking at with that is we're isolating. Uh, kind of like side to side what's happening during a gait cycle so it's it's a constant like catch and release and and we have to catch ourselves push ourselves forward then we have this period of time where if you're looking at sprinting where you're off the ground completely and so so the guts are elevated and they're not sitting on your pelvic diaphragm and then we slam into the ground again and so we've got this constant like pitter patter of of cycling over that, that phase. And so, so what the oscillatory isometric does is if we're looking at it in terms of a split squat is we've isolated one side um, in either front foot elevation or rear foot elevation or just in a normal split squat. squat. And, and we're saying like, look, like this front side is going to stop us and it's gonna do the catch every time. Um, and we're just gonna keep drilling that in. And so if you start with the slow pace, like I do in the first video that's on there, Um, it's basically to get them to find a position of like appropriate descent, right? Like now my pelvic diaphragm, I've caught that position. Um, I'm at the lowest point and I have to just slowly push back out of that. And so when you get that, um, it's basically just saying like from, from even like a sensory feel, it's just like, okay, this is the bottom of where I'm supposed to be at. And they catch onto that pretty quickly. And so you, you have them release the kettlebell and they catch it and they're supposed to stop as quickly as they they can. And it starts out looking terrible. And hopefully by the third set, you've got like a C minus looking into like a B plus looking, you know, flip squat. And so, you know, we can, you can change up where the load goes on that also. But, but the main thing that I'm looking for is like, okay, they're able to catch the brakes. They're able to go back up to the top and they're able to, to overcome that, that drop that they just felt because there's that moment when they release the kettlebell that the organs are kind of just hanging in limbo and they haven't reacted yet, right? Like there's no momentum behind them. You've started in the static position, you drop and you catch yourself and they slam the bottom and you're supposed to overcome that. And so that's the goal of that. that. That's that portion I was just talking about where they have to be able to accept force well. And so as you increase the tempo, like you said, then you're dropping quickly and you're catching as quickly as you can, because that's what you just worked on. But now you're pushing back out of it quickly also. So that's where it comes into where like, you have these athletes that weren't great force absorbers to begin with. And so they obviously weren't very good force producers. So now that we've got the, at least the absorption end of that kind of covered, it's like, okay, let's see if you can push back up to the starting position. So that's when those, those oscillatory isometrics get quicker and there becomes less, and static work in there as you can see as you kind of go down that line um, because it's like drop catch push drop catch push drop catch push
0: and you uh, turn it into a jump
1: yeah absolutely. that'd be absolutely.
0: kind of your end product almost
1: that's that is hopefully the end product and and wh- there's a couple of ways that i've thought about doing that too and it's like am i am i thinking like i start with a high kettlebell and i release it and i catch at the bottom where i'm supposed to and then i just kind of release the kettlebell and jump out of that like that's an option because i'm not a huge fan again if we're talking like we did earlier about band exactly jump what out. i was I'm a fan of yes. overloading the jump portion of it right so yeah. um there's a couple ways that become like there's a couple directions you can take it just based on what the person's able to do um but ultimately like yeah, you, this should end in something dynamic, this should end in a catch, or if we're looking at the split squat variation, which I think lends itself more towards sprinting, uh, we're looking at like a drop and a catch and a push off with that front leg or whatever it is, so um, there's a lot, a lot of ways you can take Dude, that. Dude, this, sure.
0: this is interesting stuff, I like this a lot, yeah, there's so many directions yeah. you could go in, um, so what are your, kind of your, like, let's say your intro phase, and that's kind of where you're at right now, I think, and, like, how far you've pushed it, it sounds like. What's kind of, like, your sets and reps, and, like, where are you putting this? Right.
1: Um, so this is going to be, because this is, in my mind, like, it's a total body thing, right? Like, and we all learn, like, kind of how you disseminate a program, I guess, and, and how your program writing goes. And it goes with, like, your big bang, like, bilateral stuff. And if I'm going to do that stuff, that still so goes to the top. And this is like, this stuff is going to be towards the front end, I think. And it depends on, on the athlete and where they're at in their season. But I think when you have stuff that, that is this like kind of neurally fatiguing and physically fatiguing. Cause like, for myself, I do a ton of reps when I do it. And I do kind of a moderate light weight because again, I'm not great at the catch part. Like, I think I should be quicker on the catch. And so I do, like 12 reps when I'm doing it. Cause I just want to like hit the isolation and, and and do that portion really, really cleanly. Um, if I've got somebody who is already really, really good at the catch and they need to be just explosive and kind of push back to that starting position, um, I'll probably increase the weight a bit and I'll have them go like six reps and maybe, maybe three to five sets per side, depending on where they're at. Um, But I like to stack this kind of stuff towards the beginning because I think it gets, I I think I get more out of the exercise when it stacks at the beginning and it has such a good carryover into everything else that we do because I've kind of already primed the intention for the workout when I, when I add that kind of stuff at the beginning. But again, like I'm not big on filler exercises. If, If we get 45 minutes of like quality stuff and I think that, that we've improved by, by a letter grade on everything that we've done that day then like i'm happy with it so it's it's hard to give specifics on like where i would put that or how many sets the reps i would do because it, there are so many all of these things that we've talked about in this this podcast so far are just tools in the toolbox to be able to make a decision down the road so it's saying like i didn't like the way that looked so let me offset the load let me put the load contralaterally instead and then see if that looks better let me coach their breathing like this or let me like elevate that front foot and then you get what you want and so that stuff it's just decision making tools really so I when people call you know it a model or say like you like I go along with Bill this or that like it's not it's just these are just like I'm I'm taking the principles of like physics and and a couple other like anatomical ideas and saying like okay let's put this together and see how this works and I've had success with it so far so
0: no, I, I love the way you put that too. It's, it's, it's hard to avoid tribalism. And if, if you're doing that, then hell, man, <laughs> you're, you're, you're ahead of many of us. So I, right. I, one other thing I wanted to mention on that. So I've been, I've been messing with them and I had a couple other friends mess with these oscillatory isometrics. And I've noticed um, one of the things like the, the guys that tend to overcome and they already are pretty good at overcoming. They like to stomp the ground. Like they like to have a big, like they want their foot to come way up. It's really heavy. And like, I've noticed you didn't do that. And I've noticed I'd rather be more focused more on yielding and smoothness through this. So it's almost more like I'm trying to time up the catch so that it almost feels effortless when I hit that bottom position, as opposed to like having it be this like jarring force. Does that make sense? It does. So what
1: I would say is is if we're looking at that and someone is having to bring their foot off, look at where they're bringing their foot off in in like the phase of this exercise. If you slow it down, like, maybe it's too much load because maybe that foot has to come off because they have to create so much force into the ground to get themselves back up to that top position that like there's this like flow of where it has to come up
0: they need that that reactive force coming back right okay
1: right and so i try to avoid that as much as possible and let like the the just shift in where my body weight is going be the driver of like early propulsion or late propulsion, that kind of situation. So um, if I'm forward leaning, like my pelvis is behind me, I can assume that I'm being propulsive. And if, if my kind of, you know, everything's kind of stacked and my, my rib cage and my pelvis and my knee and my ankle are all stacked like that. you can assume that you are, you're in a pretty good, like decelerative position. So finding a balance there. And I, I do find myself when I do like a lot of reps, I get away from like the form and my foot'll start coming off the ground and stuff, because my main push and this is just from being an athlete like the people that you work with are athletes and you've been an athlete and so your assumption is always like oh this upward part's the part that i'm supposed to be working at really hard like it's driving up and 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 being forceful through the ground that's like the landing part is probably what i need a little bit
0: more of at this point dude i'm gonna i can't wait to go train today actually i'm gonna go have to check some of this stuff out and kind of play around with it a little yeah man yeah for sure um the the last thing i wanted to talk about and this is kind of uh, general and uh, it's hilarious. I'm I'm grabbing all this off just off your Instagram, but it's it's hilarious. Like this is kind of all the stuff I've been interested in recently. So um, right. you talk, you put together like a little template uh, for a baseball pitcher in a week, based on uh, trying to balance and consolidate his sport load and his general training load. And I just kind of right. wanted to get your thoughts on like where you are with that right now. I actually just released an ebook like on this subject, and I'm like really into this this topic right now. So I was kind of wondering like where your thoughts are. Uh, with yeah um so so
1: really what this spawned from was just uh i i got my first professional level baseball pitcher that i worked with and i've never had somebody who had who like came to me and was like i know exactly five months down the line from now like what day i'm going to be pitching like you don't get that a lot in sport because like you don't you just don't have that kind of plan ahead and, and baseball has that kind of that kind of thing so so he's on a five-day pitching cycle and I was like he's he's getting up in his career a little bit um as far as his age goes and, and his years played I think this is his 13th year as a professional baseball player um overall and so really what I have to do at his age is is really balance where these stressors come from and like the type of it's gonna it's gonna affect the type of quality that I get just across the board um, out of his training and then out of because I'm, I'm doing his in-season training also um, which is kind of a unique opportunity for me but because he's a veteran um, in, in the league he's he's got this opportunity to kind of have whoever he wants to do his programming for him so um, what I have to look at then is like the way that i broke this down and because the mlb is very different than other sports in that like the nba most of your games that they're not on a weekend are going to be evening games right like they have to be a time where viewership is going to be high baseball doesn't care as much about the tv viewership i think so you get games that are in the afternoon sometimes and you watch them maybe on mlb network and there's five people in the stands because everybody's working and then you have evening games that are bigger and so the kind of roadmap that i did that I built for him was this like evening versus morning, and how do we stack the stressors to, to be the most efficient for his for his training and his recovery? And so, if he has an afternoon game, and I, I kind of I, I think I put a cutoff for him of like an afternoon game being a game that started before or ended before five o'clock. If he has a game that he ends before five o'clock, he's already and he's pitching on that day, so we call that day zero. Um, what I want is for that day to, to be to stack those high stressors as much as I can on that day. So he gets done with the game before five o'clock. That leaves him time, if he's feeling like it, in my mind to get a workout in afterwards. Um, and so, of course, we're looking at something that's going to be more in terms of like micro dosing. So a lot of like low volume, but 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 high metabolic stress, um, kind of after that. So maybe it's like maybe it's like a two or three by five on a heavy trap bar deadlift that he wants to do afterwards or something that's going to be just like meat and the tail lift right afterwards that are going to be, going to be low volume and, and kind of a uh, kind of high threshold. And then uh, on the opposite side of that, if he's got an evening game, obviously I don't want him doing a lot of that, like ramp up stuff beforehand, because if you look at the way that they warm up in baseball, like, He's probably got two hours of like build up throwing that he's doing beforehand anyways um, and so my job is not to ramp him up like five hours before a game when he's you know pitching that night so the way that I look at this then is is and I can probably send you a, a picture of that that diagram so it'll be a little easier for people to see on there too but like if they start with a with a an afternoon game, then it kind of flows down and the next day. is like a moderate low day because they just had this, they had this full day of high stressor basically with the game in the morning and, and the lift in the evening. And then, so we kind of modify that down and then days, so that's day one then days two and three are always a constant because they're in the middle of the cycle. So we know like it's been two days removed from a pitching event. It'll be two days until another pitching event. But then when you get past day three, when you're looking at day four and five, and five is the pitching day, I have to ramp back up, but I have to ramp up in an appropriate way based on what the next game looks like. So for me, the way I kind of push that back up was like, is the next game gonna be an afternoon game or an evening game? And they know that already, right? So once I've gotten through day two and day three that are, that are this, uh, this very standard days, I think one of the days in his situation, is like a bullpen day. So he does throw in the middle of the week pretty hard, but then it goes back to light stuff. And so then it's like, okay, am I ramping back up on this, on this little roadmap for an evening game or for a morning game? And so if it's for an evening game, I put like, you know, a moderate stressor on him uh, the day before. And then the morning of, or that, that day, it's just pitching for him. Um but if we go back into it, I if it's an, if it's going to be an afternoon game or a morning game, uh, then what I like to do is have them uh, lift really lightly. Then they'll do their their actual game day pitching, and then he goes back down into uh, you know a high intensity workout after his pitch. Um, and so just making sure that I'm giving him like it's just accommodating for his stress level basically. And, and you, you obviously know a lot about this with with your book. Um, and so I just have to layer high stress on high stress and make sure that those days, uh, I get the most out of those days that I can. And the days that are supposed to be, be low or, or moderate should be low and moderate across the board. What you see a lot of the times with, with people, especially young strength coaches I'd say is is, oh, we've got an off day, so now we're going to bust it, right? Like, we're going to get the most out of this day, and it's going to, like, we're going to grind you in, and then you got a game, you know, the next day or whatever it is. It's just like, if we're making all of these day, days high, we're not getting, first of all, our, our training's going to suck, because they're not going to be feeling well, but, like, we're not ever getting a recovery in at that point, because an off day is not just an off day
0: like it, you
1: have to stack these it's these an off day of, for
0: everything man it's not just, right, right. not just for the pitcher. yeah <laughs> exactly exactly not
1: just because we're not throwing doesn't mean uh, like we're not stressing yeah. the body that day so um it was it basically just came from that i haven't done much with that lately just because we've been at this standstill um well i think mlb teams now i think i just got a text from him a while ago though uh, talking about his workout so I think uh, MLB teams are now at the point where they're like thinking about bringing guys back to, to do some workouts. And so we're going to hit, you know, back on that five day cycle again, but really because this is the first time that he's done this the first time that I've done this with him. Um, we're going to try it out and just see, see how it goes. So hopefully, you know, I don't know if it'll be October this year, but hopefully when we get towards that time uh, we can see how this goes. And a lot of it because he's such an, he's an older guy and he's so experienced with all this stuff, like, I rely on his feedback for almost everything. Like if, if I if I could give this guy like the RPE Nobel Prize, like he knows what he's doing. So when I, when I have the guy that I trust like that, it's easy to implement something like this because he knows what feels like a light day to him and, and what should feel like an off day. And like, he's not a guy that I have to be in his ear. Like, are you pushing hard enough on the days that we should be on? And so if he's willing to try this out and say, you know, Maybe he has a terrible game uh, in in, a, in the morning one time, and then he has to go in for a lift afterwards. And if he's willing to try that out,
0: he's willing to try that out. So we're gonna see what it does. So yeah, that's that's such the conundrum I think with with pro sports is you have so many different training ages, and some guys have never trained at all. And and if you're not, and again, I'm not saying that this is even possible, but if you're not finding a way to communicate with each of your players. Uh, you know about these types of things and then you have to kind of gauge how much they're really going to do of it and how they respond to some of these things like you're dealing with it's just a lot more complicated than i think people think uh when Absolutely. you when you think about consolidating stressors correctly and i think the other so the this picture is awesome because you have such a regimented schedule it sounds like you know from a day-to-day uh you know i have a lot of friends in minor league hockey that i've talked to this about and they're in a complete another boat where a lot of these guys don't want to train heavy at any point in the season. You're trying to prevent strength decay. And you really sometimes only have out of the entire month, you know, they show me their monthly calendars, maybe six days to train literally six days to train that don't have games and practices on them. So it's like, when can I get this high intensity stimulus? And as you say, it's got to be microdosed. We can't have one of these, you know, we talk about like a high intensity, high volume day, like I do in my book. And it's like, Yeah, but in most cases, like, even that is going to fall well short of, like, your common gym bro's expectation of what a high-intensity, high-volume day is, you know? Um, Absolutely, absolutely. And so when you look at, like, if
1: this is, if something like this is applicable to, like, the NBA, um, it's, it's hard to say because, like, the only other variable that I can count in to tell, like, what's a high intensity or low intensity situation for a pitcher is just going to be their pitch count right like how many balls did they throw that time and so for an nba athlete it's like first of all they're playing when they get in season they're playing more than they practice and i have to accommodate for minutes and i have to accommodate for like the distance traveled on the court and, like high load minutes versus low load minutes and like what all like there're all of these other factors that you have to take into account and say i like should this guy be doing a heavy lift after his game and like how do we determine if that's right for him or not so you have to have communication with the like it has to be this whole i'm by myself making these decisions with this baseball player but like to be in an nba setting you have to have like this this team mentality of saying like look i'm going to work with our with our data guy and to be able to tell like after this game and this kid played this many minutes like is this a good time to do a lift or not Based on what what that looks like, and it's kind of just through trial and error, I think, or, or however much data you have accumulated on what guys look like after stuff. But it's it's a lot of record keeping and a lot of saying like this is what's going to work for us, or this what's work works for this guy in this situation. So, I think baseball is an, an easy place to apply this because, like I said, he's only pitching every five days. So I if I know that in advance and he doesn't get hurt or there's not some other buildup, I can have Six months of training laid out to say where we're going to go and to see how we feel. So,
0: yeah, and this is that's the whole other can of worms, like you mentioned in the NBA side, is like, especially that league, it's so player driven. Uh, That's a whole other factor that you have to factor in. Like, it's player driven, and then you also are always dealing, you know, with sport coaches in all sports, and how can you best, and again, I think the high performance model is going to, it brings a lot of credence because you have a lot of people making the decision and communicating it to the coach. But at the end of the day, the sport coach is still the one calling a lot of the shots so how can we and this is all you know topic for a whole nother day but how can you relate to these coaches that you understand kind of the demands and macro principles of the game and we and this is how we worked back to making the decisions we're making and you know again whole nother ball of wax but there's just a lot that goes into that man so much absolutely, <laughs> so, absolutely. yeah but, but yeah so eric thank you so much man i really i really do appreciate the time also best looking puppy of all the strength coaches on Instagram. Maybe. I don't know. So.
1: Thank you. No, I appreciate that. She's uh, She's been crazy. She's been biting my hand half the time we've been sitting
0: here. Dude, you've <laughs> been, I'm really impressed. You've been locked in. I'm like, oh, man, he just keeps trucking this dog. <laughs> when, when you've got a dog like this, she's coming at me right now. When
1: you've got a dog like this, that is just in your face all the time, you get kind of used to it after
0: a little while. So, so you're going to be prepped for kids in a few years. Oh man, God, you know, I, hope <laughs> I hope not. I hope
1: not.
0: Um uh, anything you want to plug socials projects you're working on anything like that
1: uh, sure. Um, might as well do a shameless plug here uh if you want to follow my instagram, it is e p h period two four so um that's where I put up most of my content um I have a Twitter account I couldn't tell you the handle I don't get on there or post anything. um Facebook is pretty much just for my mom to look at occasionally or see <laughs> pictures or remember to keep track of people's birthdays, so don't look at me on there. Um, if, anybody, if anybody ever wants to just like reach out and talk uh, my email is Eric E-R-I-K H-U-D-D at gmail.com so um,
0: I'm always open to having conversations like this and so I really appreciate you having me on Jack dude of course man this has been a pleasure and I'm sure it's hopefully going to be the first of many uh, conversations Because, like I said you, you left me with a lot to go work on at my, uh, my field today as I socially distanced. good room, man so. yeah, <laughs> have fun with it That's all all right. it's all about. thanks a lot Eric appreciate it man
1: no problem, Bye-bye.